0: Amen. Thank you, Linda. We do appreciate that. We've just been so blessed this week to have uh, our family with us. Linda flying in from Kentucky. My daughter, Lauren, here as well. And my other daughter, Clarissa, is here from San Diego. And if you want to see the prettiest baby in the nursery, go over there. That's my granddaughter. And we are thankful to have them them with us uh, today and for the last week or so. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, John chapter 18, and we have been discussing for the past few weeks the last hours of Jesus' life before he went to the crucifixion, and in those last hours of his life, there were two trials that took place. One was the trial before Jewish authorities where the high priest presided. A second trial took place, and this was before the Roman authorities where Pilate the uh, governor of judea was presiding and there's really something about trials and courtrooms and lawyering that that had just intrigued us as a people i'm sure that many of you probably sat in the 90s if some of you most of you are that old that you sat in the 90s and you watched television as the oj simpson trial unfolded you may not have liked the verdict but everybody was glued to the television to watch that I can remember where I was when they announced the verdict for Scott Peterson's trial. And it seems like we're just captivated by courtrooms and by attorneys and trials and things such as that. Many of the most popular television shows that we've had over the past several years have been about courtrooms. Perry Mason, that premiered in 1957 and it seems like courtrooms have been uh, interesting to us on, on television ever since. Uh, Perry Mason is actually a character that appeared much, much earlier in the 1930s. There were movies about Perry Mason. But we're captivated by those kinds of things. But it seems like lately that the thing that has really turned our attention, as we watch television especially, uh, are the forensics that are developed for trial. We're finding out all the evidence, the evidence that's brought to trial. And we, the, the forensics have become so sophisticated today that it's more impossible than ever to commit a perfect crime. So we have all these shows on television now, and the courtroom is sort of given away to the different shows about the forensic evidence. And so we have uh, all these different programs, and I don't know about you, but I'm almost sick of turning on the TV if, if I have to see one more mutilated body laying in somebody's morgue while they examine it. But we have those shows. We have CSI, which I don't watch, and we have CSI Miami, which I don't watch, And CSI New York, which I don't watch. Uh, But I'll tell you something. If there was a show that came from the first century concerning these things, and it was CSI Jerusalem, that's a show that I would watch. Today we're going to talk about the trial of Jesus, one of the trials. We're going to speak about the Jewish trial. And we're going to examine some of the evidence that was there a little bit later in the message. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. And we're looking at John chapter 18, and we'll begin reading with verse number 28. John 18, verse number 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. You know, I read that verse, and that's one of the most amazing verses of Scripture to me. Here are these people that unjustly accused Jesus. They were going to take him and falsely crucify him under unjust charges. They were going to murder him. And yet these same people were afraid of being defiled by entering into a Gentile's judgment hall. Verse number 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor or a criminal, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them... I find in him no fault at all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to speak from your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would open, your, open the hearts of people today. Send the Holy Spirit that we might recognize the words that you want us to hear. Lord, we pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would see the evidence today of who Jesus really is. We ask you, Lord, to speak to the hearts of all who are here, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. These scriptures that we've just read speak of the Roman portion of Jesus' trial, and it's obvious to us as we read this that Jesus was found innocent of the charges. Pilate came back out, and he spoke to the people, and he said, I find in him no fault at all. Two weeks from today, we're going to talk more about the Roman trial. But today, I'd like to talk to you about the Jewish trial. I want to turn your attention to what happened in the Jewish trial... ...because what happened there is the reason why that they took Jesus before Pilate to be tried. The Jews did not have the authority to put anyone to death... The Romans didn't allow them to do that, and so they had to take Jesus before Roman authorities, and hopefully they would find a charge against him that would stick, and they would find him guilty of a capital offense. Now today, as I say, we're going to look at the Jewish trial and discover some things about it, but as we notice reading the scriptures here that John really doesn't record anything for us about what happened in that trial. And so for us to discover what the Jews did in the trial of Jesus, we have to go to another place. So we want to talk about today what happened in this trial and what were the charges against Jesus. First of all, this morning I want to talk to you about the tainted accusations. And to find out about these, we need to go to the book of Matthew. So I'd like you to turn there, please, to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to read uh, beginning in verse number 59. And here we'll see the charge, the first charge that was made against Jesus. Jesus was brought to Caiaphas, who was the high priest... Uh, First, he was taken to Annas, who was a former high priest, and he was one from which they could get some advice on what to do with Jesus. And so then they took him to Caiaphas. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse number 59, the Scripture says, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now I want you to notice the information that we have in verse number 59. It shows us that these people were determined to find an excuse to crucify Jesus. So determined were they that they brought in false witnesses to bring testimony against him. They, they brought in these people who were going to tell lies about Jesus. But each time the false witnesses were brought in, their testimonies were thrown out because they weren't, they weren't consistent with one another. And the Jewish law was very specific about this. You had to have at least two witnesses that witnessed the same crime. And these two witnesses had to agree perfectly together. And so when there were people who came in and brought their charges and the witnesses did not agree, then they threw out that testimony. So there were many of the false witnesses that were called and the information was discarded. But at last, they did come up. With two men whose stories seemed to agree, and so they brought a charge against Jesus. And the charge that they brought first against him was that of destroying and building. A charge of destroying and building. Because this charge said that Jesus claimed that he could destroy the temple of God and he could build back this temple in three days' time. Mark records this charge in Mark chapter 14. It says, And there arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now we think, well, why why is that so important, or, or what's going on here? Well, actually, this could be a charge like sorcery. They knew that nobody could do something like this. I mean, black magic has to be involved for somebody to claim that they could tear down this temple that took so many years to build, and yet Jesus said, if you tear it down, I can build it again without hands. I can rebuild this temple in three days. Now, that was a charge that was like sorcery, and so that would be one that would be punishable by death. Now, that statement does contain a certain element of truth, but it's not the whole truth. Many times you've seen on TV when people are sworn into a courtroom that they say to them, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Well, here's a statement that has some truth in it, but it's not the whole truth. John records the incident for us when Jesus made the statement. It's in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus actually said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. And we notice there that it's not the same thing that those men said. He did not say, if you, or if I destroy this temple, or I will destroy the temple. He said, if you destroy the temple. And so it's obviously that he meant them and not himself. But in verse 21, uh, of that same chapter, John gives us further explanation. It says, but he spake of the temple of his body. And so this testimony, the two false witnesses, was not accurate testimony. And many people believe that the high priest and the others, they knew exactly what Jesus meant. They knew what the saying meant. He was saying that if you kill me, then in three days I'm going to come back. And do you know it was probably that statement that caused the Jews to demand that a guard be put at Jesus' tomb? If you remember, they asked Pilate, To put a guard at his tomb because he said that he would arise from the dead. And we find it in Matthew 27. They said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. And so they must have known what he was talking about. But in any case, there was something about the testimony of those two men that didn't perfectly agree. And so that charge was thrown out. And so it wasn't the charge of destroying and rebuilding the temple for which they condemned him. So they had to have another charge. How are they going to have Jesus put to death? So they come up with another one. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 62. It says, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said... Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And so there's another charge that's brought, and this is the charge of deity and blasphemy. You see, the high priest knew very well the implication of the statement. When Jesus said that he'd be raised from the dead, he knew what Jesus was saying, and so he asked him point-blankly, he said, I want you to tell us whether you are truly the Son of God. Tell us if you truly are the Christ. And the word Christ, of course, means Messiah. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And when Jesus answered that question affirmatively... Then they knew that right here in a court of law, under oath, Jesus must be guilty of blasphemy because he said that he was God. Now, folks, there's a passage that the Jehovah Witnesses need to get hold of because if Jesus never claimed to be God, then they never would have said that he was guilty of blasphemy. Of course he said that he was the Son of God. And so here's the charge that stuck. And this is the reason why the Jews condemned him to die. Now, interestingly enough, that is not the charge that they brought to Pilate. It wasn't the charge of blasphemy for which the Romans had him executed. You see, Pilate never would have even entertained the idea that they should crucify Jesus on a charge of blasphemy. I mean, Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. That meant nothing at all to Pilate. He didn't care about that. The Romans would never execute someone on that kind of charge And so there had to be something else yet. But of course, Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy. Jesus is, he was, and he always will be the Son of God. He's God himself. And if he hadn't been God, he couldn't have been the substitute for our sin. If he hadn't been God, he couldn't have suffered infinite punishment on the cross. If he hadn't been God, he never would have been able to live a perfect life with no defilement. If he hadn't been God, he couldn't have taken the punishment for our sins. Of course, Jesus Christ was God. And folks, if he hadn't been God, he never would have been able to come out of that grave. He is and he was God. So these charges were tainted, and it was a bogus trial. But it's not just the fact that the charges were all trumped up. There were other things about the trial of Jesus that weren't right. Not, not this trial before the Jews... There were other illegalities that took place there, and I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. There are several of them, and I don't have time to even talk about them all, but there are several things that took place in the trial of Jesus that were totally illegal according to Jewish law. Number one, there was no formal indictment. They went out to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but you don't arrest people when they have him in charge with a crime. But they arrested him anyway. And under the Jewish law, a formal indictment had to be made before you could arrest someone. Number two, it was a trial that was conducted at night. And the Jews never conducted trials at night. Night suggests a cover-up. And the Jews were so adamant about justice, they didn't even want people to think that they would ever be guilty of, of trying to do something that was wrong. But here we have a trial that's conducted at night. And the Jewish law says that when trials get to those hours of darkness, the trial is to be suspended. Number three, what was wrong with the trial? There was the use of bribery. In order to have Jesus arrested, the Jews bribed Judas to deliver him. And as we know, there were 30 pieces of silver paid for the betrayal. I don't care what system of justice you're under. No right justice says that you can... You can bribe someone for this kind of outcome. Number four is the trial before a feast day. Jesus was arrested and he was brought hastily to trial. But the Jewish law said that no trials could occur on a feast day and they could not occur on the day before a Sabbath. Now there was a reason for this and it's actually reason number five. There had to be a waiting period between conviction and sentencing. Once a person was convicted of a crime, there was a mandatory waiting period of twenty four hours before that sentence could be carried out carried out. And especially this was important in the case of a capital offense, because the Jews were were were, were looking at justice in such a way that Every judge had to be in perfect agreement. He had to have time to examine all of the evidence to see if it was exactly right. And they thought that it took at least 24 hours and sometimes even longer to reach a proper verdict and to pass the sentence. But that didn't happen in the case of Jesus. And so they, the Jews were, were wanted to execute him. And it was much, much harder to execute a person under their laws than it is even under ours. Number six, what was wrong with the trial? The testimony of the accused. Jesus was convicted under oath by his own testimony. The high priest demanded, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. No one could be compelled to testify against himself. And in that, the Jewish law is much like ours. Our Fifth Amendment rights say that no person can be compelled to give a testimony against himself in a capital case. But not with Jesus. He testified. And he said, I am the Son of God. And so they convicted him under his own words. Now, those those are just a few illegalities of this trial. And if we really look at this, what we see is a vendetta against Jesus. The hearts of these people were so wicked, they were so perverse, that they wanted to put Jesus to death at any cost. And if it meant breaking their own laws in droves, that's exactly what they would do. Ever wondered about it? Have you ever wondered why the Jews didn't proddingly uh, proceed through the trial of Jesus? Why didn't they go through a, a proper arrest? Why didn't they take time for the trial? Why wasn't the waiting period there for the conviction? It's because they knew that they couldn't obtain the verdict that they wanted if they carried out the trial in any other way. But I want to tell you a reason that's much more important than that. It's because Jesus said, My hour is come. Jesus knew exactly how and when he would be put to death. And these Jews that did what they did worked everything within the framework of God's divine plan. Peter said on the day of Pentecost... Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have been cru- have crucified and slain. So these are tainted accusations. There's no reason at all why Jesus should have been arrested, no reason to be tried, and certainly no reason to be convicted. But now let's turn our attention in another direction, and let's talk about the truthful arguments. If we could examine all of the evidence for the trial, how could we say that Jesus was truly innocent of everything that they said? How could he substantiate the fact that he was God? How could he say that he was the Messiah? Is there proof that shows us he's the Messiah, uh, the King, that he's the Savior of the world? Do we have enough proof for that? And folks, if this trial had been conducted in the right way, the witnesses could have been found who could show us exactly that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. Now, if we go back and we look at the trial now, if we could be there today, there are multitudes of proofs that Jesus was everything that he said that he was. And, of course, I only have to give you one proof of it all, and that is that Jesus came out of the tomb. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God because of that empty tomb. Remember, we talked about it on Easter. The grave clothes were empty. The tomb was empty. That's all the proof that we need to show that Jesus is who he says that he is. But if you'd been at this trial, you wouldn't have had that evidence because Jesus hadn't yet been crucified. And so, therefore, Jesus hadn't yet arisen from the grave. So is there other evidence that we can look at? I mean, is there something here that we can find that'll show us that he is who he says that he was? Now, I have five, five pieces of evidence that I want to show you today. And uh, there are many more. It's certainly more than the evidence that was put forward at the mock trial when they had no evidence at all. So we're going to look at that a little bit. What about the evidence for who Jesus was? Was he really the Messiah? Well, the first piece of evidence that we could examine is the place, the manner, and the ancestry of his birth. The Old Testament scriptures tell us exactly where the Messiah would be born. It tells us how he would be born. And it tells us about what his lineage would be. The scripture said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Micah prophesied that 700 years before Christ. He wrote, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. And Bethlehem, we know, was the birthplace of Jesus Christ. The history's there. I mean, all the Romans or anyone else would have to do is pull out the records and they would find out. Yes, indeed, he was born in Bethlehem. But it was more significant. His birth is more significant than just the place that he was born. What's really astounding is the manner in which he was born. And the word of God says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what do we know about Jesus? Of course, he was born of a virgin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 8, 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, and that means before they had intimate relationship, a relationship with one another, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Jesus was born of a virgin, just as the Scripture said. Then we know that the Messiah would have the lineage of a king. The family that he would be born into had to be descended from Israel's greatest king, David. And what do we find about Jesus? Yes, he did come from the lineage of a king. In the book of Luke, we have the genealogy of Mary that shows us that he was descended from David. Matthew gives us the genealogy of Joseph, the adopted father, as if we even needed that. But it also showed that Joseph came from David. And then there's all other kinds of events concerning his birth that were prophesied. For instance, when Jesus uh, and his family went down to Egypt to escape Herod. That was spoken about in Hosea chapter 11, verse number 1. So we have all the proof that's necessary from God's word that Jesus is exactly the Messiah as it said he would be. The, the, The birth is where it's supposed to be. The lineage is what it's supposed to be. The manner is the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus is truly the Messiah. We have other evidence We could talk about the one who came before Jesus because the scripture said that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. That means that there would be someone who would come and announce his birth. There would be a person who would say and point to him and say, this is the one who's come. He's the Messiah. And who did that? John the Baptist did, didn't he? John the Baptist, the one who announced the coming of the Lord Jesus. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the scripture said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And who was this Elijah, or the person like Elijah? That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And when they heard John the Baptist and when they heard him preach and they saw him baptized, didn't they think that he was one like Elijah? Well, in fact, they did because they asked him the question. They said, are you Elijah? And... Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy. In Mark chapter 9, they asked him, saying, What say the scribes that Elias must first come or Elijah must first come? And he told them, Elijah, Elias, verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught, But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as is written of him." So John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah, the one who would announce the coming of the king. Then we also have this evidence, the signs and the miracles of Jesus. Now surely the high priest and the others, they were aware of Jesus' many miracles. If we look here in the book of John, don't we know that that John takes seven of those miracles and he pulled those seven particular things out to show us that Jesus... Must be the Christ. The miracles prove who he is. The lame walk. We find it in John. Blinded eyes are able to see. We see that. Dead people that are raised from the grave. Jesus did that with Lazarus. And what did the Bible prophesy in Isaiah 35? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing... For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Oh, they were very much aware of the miracles. His opponents said so. The enemy said, we know about the miracles. John 11, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. So how could they unjustly accuse him of not being the Christ when they saw the miracles that he did? Even Nicodemus, who was one of their members, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, he saw who Christ was, he recognized him, and in John chapter 3, he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So even Nicodemus, one of their own, recognized it. So they knew it. But there weren't any witnesses that were called in the trial of Jesus. The fourth evidence that we have is his public entrance into Jerusalem. Far back in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah said that he would enter Jerusalem before his death. And the prophecy said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Don't you think that scripture should have been fresh in their minds? What happened at the beginning of that week? Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people were shouting his praises Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They threw palm branches in his way, they signified that he was a king. That should have been on their minds. And what if he had called the, uh, the Jews, had called the witnesses who, who gave the disciples that donkey? He told the disciples exactly where they would find it. They said, go seek out this person and you're going to find a donkey tied there and you, you take that donkey away from those people. You know, I suspect that back in those days that a horse thief was treated as badly as it was in the Old West. But you notice what happened when those disciples came and took the donkey away? Not one word was said. No one objected to what they were doing. And why? Because it had been prophesied. Exactly as the Bible says. He's the Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies. So how could they overlook an event that's fresh in their minds? I mean, it just happened. There was a stir in Jerusalem because of Jesus when he rode in. So it was evident. And there were plenty of witnesses that could be called in this case. But now let's look at one other piece of truthful argument. And that's the evidence of the betrayal of a close friend. And surely they couldn't miss this one because, folks, they were complicit in producing this piece of evidence. Jesus was betrayed by someone who's close to him. They paid one of his own disciples to betray him. He was a friend. In fact, Judas went into the garden, and you remember he gave Jesus a kiss to identify him in the dark to his enemies. Did the Scripture say that that would be done? Most certainly it did. 1,000 years before in a scripture that their scribes had copied down thousands upon thousands of times, a scripture that had been read in the temple and in the synagogues on multiple occasions, the prophecy said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And 30 pieces of silver were paid to one of his closest friends, and that's evidence. When Judas came to the garden, Jesus asked him, Friend, Wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. All of the evidence is right there before their eyes. They have it all. And if this trial was held with real evidence, it would have withstood all of the tainted accusations. But now you may say to me, No, Pastor, why are you telling us all this? How how does this information relate to us today? I mean, so, yeah, yes, there was an unjust trial. We admit to that. Jesus should not have been condemned to die. I agree with those conclusions. So why would you tell us all of this? Because now we need to take a moment to consider the time for acquittal. Because, you see, it's just like every one of you this morning are in a courtroom. You've heard all of the evidence. Everything's been presented to you. Jesus is no longer on trial here. Now... Who's on trial is every person in this room. Every person here has to make a decision concerning Christ. And after all uh, the evidence is presented, after everything is brought in, a new trial starts to take place. Jesus is not on trial, you are. And the question is, how are you going to decide concerning Jesus? And you have to make a decision today. I want to know how you're going to vote concerning Jesus. My first question to you is, will you crown him or will you crucify him? Is there enough evidence that we presented today that you can say, well, yes, Jesus is everything he said he was. Jesus is truly a king. All the evidence points to his acquittal. Will you say that? Or will you take Jesus down from the witness stand and, and, and instead of putting a crown on his head, you say, away with him. Take him away. Let him be crucified. Would that, that be the decision that you make concerning Christ today? Will you crown Jesus or will you crucify him? Now, you may say today, well, we'll put the crown on his head. Well, we understand he's innocent. Yes, put that crown on his head. And that's all that I need to do. I just need to acknowledge today, Jesus should not have been crucified. And yes, Jesus was a king or Jesus was a good person, whatever you may decide. And you know, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing for you to think like that. But you know that you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone Any rational thinking person today who would say, no, Jesus should have been crucified. Of course he should have been crucified. You're not going to find anybody talks like that today. Most people will say, well, yes, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a humanitarian. You don't put people to death for things like that. Certainly he should have been put and shouldn't have been put to death. Just about everybody believes that. I mean, you're in good company if you believe that. Everybody in the room, most people in the world would agree with you. Jesus should not have been crucified. But it's not the decision of just whether the evidence points to a crown or a crucifixion. Because you can't stand back and wash your hands of him and say, let him go free. He's not such a bad guy after all. Because there's another decision that has to be made. And the next question I want to ask you is, will you confess him or will you deny him? You see, Pilate also found him not guilty. Do you remember that? Pilate said, I don't find any fault in him at all. Pilate also found him not guilty, but he didn't personalize it. He didn't internalize it. And friend, you're today sitting in God's courtroom, and God has you on trial, and you have to make a decision concerning Jesus. And do you see, really, that you have more advantage than those Jews even had in that time? Even though Jesus was personally present, you have more advantage than they have. Now you can look back on it and you know about the crucifixion. It's possible for you to go and visit the empty tomb and you see that Jesus is not there. You have all of the other evidence and you have that evidence as well today. He must be alive because the tomb is empty. So you have all of that glorious evidence of the resurrection. And now you have to decide for yourself, am am I going to confess him or will I deny him? And there's really no other options here. You can't sit on the fence on this one. You can't say, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to decide, so therefore the jury is hung. Because if you say, no, I will not confess him, then you have already denied him. You've already made your vote and you stand with those who are against him. And the question here is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you come today? Will you bow before him? Would you say, yes, he is my Lord and my Savior? Will you respond to the Holy Spirit's call? Or will you say, away with him? Crucify him. And if you leave here today without Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that's exactly what you say. He should be crucified. What will you do with Jesus today? If you say no... If you say no to him, you deny him, and you don't confess him. And the Bible says that what awaits are the eternal fires of hell. I want to ask you today, will you trust Jesus? Do you know that his death was not in vain? The Bible teaches us that Jesus died to save sinners. And everyone who believes in him can receive a full pardon of their sins. I'd like for all of you to do something with me now, if you would, please. Would everybody would just hold out your hands like this? And I want to ask you something today. Would you do this? Are, are you going to crown him? Or are you going to crucify him? Confess him? Or will you deny him? And I want to ask you one more question today. I'm saved or I'm not saved? And if you have to turn thumbs down to say today and say, I'm not saved, then you've denied Jesus Christ. You need to know him today. There's a decision that needs to be made. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we've read your word today, we see that in the heart of every person, a decision has to be made. The Bible shows us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the Savior of the world. And Lord, either we confess that and we say, He is our Lord and our Savior, or we deny Him and we say, He must be crucified. Lord, I ask you today that you would speak to the hearts of those who have listened to this sermon. If they don't know you as personal Savior, that right now they would turn around and they would realize that they need to receive you as Savior. And then, Lord, we pray for Christians today. All the evidence is here of our Savior. And why don't we testify of the good things that he's done, of the salvation that he's brought. And I ask you to speak to hearts today that they might be brought to you. As we sing today, Lord, Jesus paid it all. Help us to understand that indeed you have paid the sin debt. And Lord, by trusting in you, we can be free. And Lord, you are our Savior. Would you speak to some heart today? And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?